2: You found the nook yet again. And you noticed. As you came in, yes, a new opening. We are now part of a network. Tales to Terrify is part of the District of Wonders network. This city in the cloud consists of four neighborhoods. There's the venerable Starship Sofa, where science mingles with art. There's Protecting Project Pulp where swords cross with sorcery and forty-fives blaze out of nowhere, and it's always foggy, and the dames are always not to be trusted. There's Crime City Central just down the way. You can hear the sirens now, maybe. And there's us, Tales to Terrify, here in the nook with Mahler, the black cat of the nook, and with me, Lawrence Santoro. So, stop by district headquarters, pick up your citizenship papers, And have a listen. Got it? Excellent. Now, come in. Settle yourselves. Grab some popcorn. Grab a cold something or another. We're just about through with July now. August looms. It always seems a bit strange to me, but I'm told by some people they actually like, actually enjoy this sort of thing. Nineties, into the hundreds, humidity that wraps a steamy wet towel round your heart. They like when the clothing sticks to your body and you can't shuck your shirt at night, when the air is melted butter and runs down your face and neck and coats your whole person. Well, I do not, as you may have gathered from earlier meetings here in the Nook. As you can tell from the adjusted temperature in here, it's a cool 67 degrees. The lights are dim to simulate autumn eve and chill starlight. Well, it is coming. If we make it through August, then September, with another year of my life charged against eternity, then October is here at last. At last, October, and pumpkins, and harvest, and corn husks. Well, all that's for later. Here we celebrate the conquest of July, and we do it with a brace of tails now. Well, you'll find out what they are. First, let me remind you of The Coming of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, coming at the end of October. Yes, Halloween. And let me remind you to go to our webpage and make a contribution, a donation. And let me remind you to leave a note for us. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us what you want to see down the way. And let me remind you to go to iTunes, the store And leave a nice five-star review. And, well, you know, contribute, volunteer to narrate, send us your ten terrifying minutes, all at tales to terrify at gmail.com. And, and nothing. Here we have it. Our two stories tonight are from American writer Michael Penkis and Australian author Felicity Dowker. First, we'll hear a delightful little tale of undead basset hounds and pigeon eroticism by Chicago author Michael Penkis.
0: Here is Wet Dog Perfume. I don't know what to do. Just listen, and maybe you can tell me. Last night, I was sitting in a dog park off the Diversity Exit, just a block west of the metro station. It was a quarter past eleven, and I'd begun to feel stupid sitting there all alone. My dog had died a week earlier, and we'd come to this park most nights. A little activity to tire us both out. I'd tried reading a book or watching television. But after eight years, it was just part of my routine that I would go to the dog park before bedtime. I really hadn't expected to see anyone in the park because, frankly, I had hardly ever seen anyone in the park this late at night. Strictly speaking, it was supposed to be closed to the public at this hour, but it wasn't like anyone came around to lock the gate at nine a woman pushed open the creaky, rusted gate and walked towards me. She looked to be my age, or maybe a little younger. She was very thin, dressed in a ragged black dress with fishnet stockings and black tennis shoes. Her face was made up in black and white streaks, so that she looked like a clown that had been caught in the rain. Like me, she didn't have a dog with her, but she did carry a large brown paper bag. There were five benches in the park, and she walked past two of them in order to sit beside me. This close, I could smell her. She smelled like a wet dog. I found the scent to be strangely comforting. Not sure what else to do, I smiled and nodded. I could see that she was wearing fishnet gloves as well. The woman asked me, "'Where's your dog?' Her voice was light with an almost baby doll squeak to it. "'He died last week.' "'I'm sorry.' She put the paper bag down on the bench between us and extended a hand towards me. "'I'm Raven.' I took her hand and told her my name. It was the middle of October, but her hand was surprisingly warm. "'The skin beneath the fishnet glove was soft. "'You'd come earlier than this with your dog... "'Humphrey,' I finished for her. "'His name was Humphrey. "'That's a nice name for a basset hound. "'When I picked him up at the shelter, "'I thought he looked sort of like Humphrey Bogart. "'Maybe if he'd worn a hat.' "'I smiled. "'Maybe. "'If you don't mind my asking, how did he die?' I shrugged. I don't know. I came home from work and he was on the couch. It looked like he just fell asleep and didn't wake up. But he was only eight years old. She nodded. That's young for a dog to die in his sleep. I shrugged again. I wanted to change the subject. So, do you have a dog? No, I just come here at night to feed the pigeons. Don't the dogs scare them away? I come late enough that there usually aren't any dogs here. Don't the pigeons sleep at night? They wake up for me. A block away, a train rattled past on the elevated track. It was impossible to speak above the noise, so I just stared at this strange woman who smelled like a wet dog and fed pigeons in the dark. I knew there was a good chance that she was crazy, or on drugs, or homeless. When the train's rattle receded in the distance, we were still staring at each other. It was Raven who looked away first, looked down at her paper bag. I was going to feed the pigeons, if that's okay. I don't mind. She still wouldn't look at me. I just wanted you to know that sometimes it freaks people out. I mean, it's why my parents finally threw me out of the house, and the doctors told me I should stop, and I took pills that made me stop, but the pills made me fat and kind of slow, so I stopped taking them. Okay. Crazy, on drugs, or homeless. Possibly all three. She smiled, and I almost forgot that there was obviously something wrong with her. She opened up the paper bag and pulled out a pocket knife. Rolling up one of her gloves, she sliced neatly across her arm, halfway between the wrist and elbow. The blood looked black in the dim glow of the streetlights. I did nothing to stop her. I knew from my own depressing teenage years that she hadn't inflicted a fatal wound. It was perpendicular, not parallel. Placing the knife on the bench, she reached into the paper bag and pulled out several large chunks of bread which she laid beside the knife. Then she took one piece and pressed it against the wound, letting it soak up the blood for maybe five seconds before tossing it onto the ground. Then she did the same thing with a second piece, and then a third. By then the wound must have begun drying up because she picked up the knife and cut herself again. Taking a closer look, I could see a webwork of old scars running along the arm, obscured earlier by the fishnet glove. She continued this pattern for several minutes, until there were probably twenty pieces of bloody bread lying scattered before us. Then she wiped the knife clean on her ragged dress, retracted the blade, and slipped it back into the paper bag. She smiled at me and... Somehow, that smile seemed more beautiful than earlier. It was transcendent, blissful. She reached out and took my hand. She squeezed it hard. Watch, she whispered, and then turned to look at the bread. I stared at her face for a few seconds after she looked away from me. Then I looked down at the dark lumps of bread on the ground and wondered what Raven was seeing. Probably something wonderful, The world she lived in was probably so much more vibrant and meaningful than mine. I'd gotten Humphrey after my third serious suicide attempt. My therapist had suggested that I get a pet. The idea had sounded ludicrous at the time, but Humphrey had helped to even out my moods. It had been nice to know that, even when my other friends didn't return my phone calls, there was at least one person who was always happy to see me. He'd only been dead for a week, and I was already looking at a crazy self-mutilator with envy. I was surprised to see a pigeon actually land on the ground, circle a piece of bloodied bread with curiosity, then peck at it. It looked to be white with gray spots, but it was impossible to say for certain in the poor lighting. When it had torn a satisfactory piece of bread away from the chunk it tested its wings and then took to the air. A few seconds later, it was replaced by two more pigeons, and then another, and then another. Soon there were a dozen of them surrounding the bread, all picking and tearing at it, occasionally taking greedy little pecks at one another. I never really noticed how playful and social pigeons could look. Normally I just thought of them as birds that Humphrey would chase away while we walked. Another train rattled past, drowning out sounds and scaring off the pigeons. Some took to the air with bread in their beaks while others went away with nothing, but they all took off at once, spreading in different directions in a flurry of feathers. Some of the white feathers fluttered about for several seconds before gradually making their way to the ground. When they landed, each feather sat still for a second or two. "'then melted away like snow. "'There were still a few bloody lumps of bread on the ground. "'I kept staring at the bread and the spaces "'where there had been feathers for only a moment, "'until Raven's voice got my attention. "'Do you have any dog treats?' "'I looked at her and was greeted again by that smile. "'I'm sorry? "'Dog treats? Do you still have any?' "'I shook my head. "'Sorry.' Then I thought about it, reaching into one of the interior pockets of my jacket. Wait. I pulled out a biscuit in the shape of a broken femur. I used to keep some there for whenever I took Humphrey out walking and hadn't thought to get rid of them. I handed the treat to Raven. She took it with one hand while reaching into her bag with the other. Before I realized what she was doing, she'd made another cut into her arm and was soaking the dog treat in the wound. She smiled all the while, either oblivious to or reveling in the pain. Staring up at me, she closed the knife as she tossed the treat absently onto the ground. She placed the knife back in the bag and then stared down at the dog treat. I did the same. I was so focused on the blood-stained biscuit that I barely noticed the sound of the gate creaking once again but I did look away when I heard the slow padding of feet. He was pale, almost black and white, just like the pigeons, just like Raven's painted face. I could barely see his eyes in the shadows that seemed to hug against him. His step was slow and lazy. He was in no hurry to greet me, knowing as always that I would wait for him. I reached down to touch him, not wondering how it was possible, but there was only cold air where I touched, and Humphrey pulled away slightly. I still couldn't see his eyes very well in the darkness, but he seemed reluctant to come closer. It's okay, I whispered, not really knowing if it was, in fact, okay. I felt that warm, soft hand on my wrist again. I didn't resist, I waited for her to pull my hand away from him. I wasn't meant to touch. I understood. But she didn't pull my hand away. Rather, she held it steady as the pocket knife slid quickly across my palm. I swore and pulled away from her, almost bringing my hand to my mouth, before I saw Humphrey take several steps closer. Holding my wounded hand, I stared at Raven. She smiled weakly, then nodded towards my dog. Hesitantly, I held my hand down for him. Humphrey sniffed at my bloody palm for a moment, then began to lick. His tongue was cold and it tickled. After a few seconds, I forgot myself and reached for his head, surprised to feel something other than cold air. I rubbed between his ears and he wagged his tail in response. His fur grew softer, and, after only a few seconds, my hand fell through him. The blood on my hand had been licked away, and I just stared at my old friend. The shadows had fallen from his eyes, and he looked at me with a familiar contentment. Then another train rattled past us. Humphrey turned to look toward the sound, then looked quickly all around him. His attention seemed to fix on something beyond the gate, and he walked quickly towards it. I stood to follow, but the soft hands took hold of me again, this time to hold me back. It's better if you don't try to follow, she said. I sat back down and looked at her. She just smiled weakly for a while before I realized that I was crying. She brought a hand to my face and wiped the tears away. She spoke very softly when she said, Give me your hand. I offered her my hand, comforted by her touch. I didn't pull away when I saw her reach into the paper bag. She drew out a thick black marker and quickly wrote something on the underside of my arm. I looked down and saw that a telephone number ran from my elbow to my wrist. Capping the pen, she leaned over and kissed my cheek, no doubt smearing it with her black lipstick. Then she took her paper bag and left me alone in the dog park. I don't know what to do. Maybe you can tell me.
2: I am a former dog owner. The Nook doesn't allow dogs. Mahler, the ink-black cat of the Nook, doesn't allow dogs. But I love dogs. I got a beagle when I was a tot, and with whom I grew into a young man. I had another later in life, Fred the Dog, who was a German shepherd. Yeah, I love dogs. I love the smell of wet dog. Takes me back, takes me home. Ah, uh, oh well. Mike, Mike Penkis, is an old friend from the Twilight Tales author's reading series. He is a member of a clan of writers that I'm beginning to think of as uh, Chicago offbeats Martin Munt, Wayne Allen Sally, maybe some others. Others we'll hear from from time to time. As with most Chicagoans, Michael was born somewhere else. Grand Rapids, Michigan, to be exact. He moved to Chicago in 2004. He's worked as a software editor, librarian, and a desktop publisher. His first short story sale was Parable of the Lazy Rooster and was published in 2007 in the anthology Tales from the Red Lion. He's had stories in Midnight Echo, Issue 7, War of the World's Front Lines, Hell in the Heartlands, wherein Wet Dog Perfume first saw inked paper. Michael performs regularly at local events, including Gumbo Fiction, the top shelf reading series, and Bad Grammar Theater, where I appeared with him just last week. He currently works as an assistant blog editor at Blackgate Magazine. Mike maintains his blog at com Scott Couchman, who voiced Wet Dog Perfume, is a Los Angeles-based science fiction and fantasy writer and voice actor. He's an instructional designer and corporate trainer by day and writer by night. He is also a podcaster and voiceover talent in those times that lie between day and night. He describes himself as the family geek and generally sleep-deprived zombie most of the time. He says he lives in a pocket of Los Angeles that no one seems to talk about, and even fewer know about. He lives there with his wife, two sons, a hamster, and a number of fish, which number varies day by day. So thank you, Scott. And thank you, Mike. Uh, Love to have you back sometime, both of you. Next, we'll hear from Melbourne based writer Felicity Dowker. Felicity is predominantly recognized as a horror writer, but has worked in quite a few genres. Her stories have appeared in Australian publications, including Borderlands, Aurelius, Andromeda Spaceways In Flight magazine, and others. She is a multiple finalist or winner of awards that include the Ditmar, Kronos, Arxelius, and I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that and Australian Shadows Awards. Around 30 of Felicity's stories have been published in Australian and international zines and anthologies. They include Year's Best Australian Fantasy and Horror, Volume 1. Felicity's debut short story collection, Bread and Circuses, from which this story is taken, is due for release from Ticonderoga Publications during 2012. Felicity always says she hates blathering on about herself in Bios, so we'll stop now, too. And, appropriately, here is...
3: Bread and Circuses Already long ago, from when we sold our vote to no man, the people have abdicated our duties. For the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office, legions, everything now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses. Satire 10, Decimus Junius Juvenalis. We live in the graveyard. It's the only place they won't go. It's not religious. There are no gods left to frighten the evil away. It's not even physical. We've dragged a few of them in to see what would happen. Nothing much did. They just get pissed. "'They get so worked up they can't function, "'not even in their usual shambolic, brainless fashion, "'and they cry gooey, pink-tinged, meaty tears. "'We think they have cellular memory "'of being truly dead and buried underground, "'and they don't like it, can't bear it. "'They would rather stand gazing in and starving, "'better that than to enter the place "'where the dead used to be imprisoned. "'So they lurch outside the cemetery,' and we cower within. My bed is a tomb that was once occupied by Sloan, comma, Marjorie. May she rest in peace. I guarantee that wherever she is now, Sloan, comma, Marjorie doesn't rest in peace. Nor do I. My lullabies are shuffling thick feet, wet, smacking lips, wretched groans oozing from putrescent throats. It's poetic, I suppose. The outcome of the final revolution— We were the ruling party for so long, living, roaming the world in arrogant freedom. They were the oppressed, dead, planted in dark earth for an eternity of decay and neglect. Perhaps it was always a matter of time until they rose up and fought for our place at the top of things. Maybe their vacant, endless striving for our downfall is fair punishment for our presumption. It doesn't matter anyway. I don't hate them. They're too empty to feel anything about, other than fear, revulsion, a crawling fascination. I hate the graveyard and the game. The game started a year ago, when we realized we graveyard citizens would survive. That left us with one question. Now what? We were alive. There was food for us to stay that way. The countless casualties left behind a lot of non-perishable foodstuffs, and the wilderness brimmed with wild animals for us to hunt. The zombies didn't come inside our graveyard, prison, sanctuary. We would endure. But what was the point? There were suicides. People strolled out of the graveyard and offered themselves to the zombies. Our leaders, men and women for whom managing our village was reason for living, saw their minions, community, slipping from their grasp. Morale wasn't low. It was subterranean. The zombies began the destruction of the human race, but we were willing to finish the job ourselves rather than face empty futures. No religion survived in the age of the walking dead. A few random crazies clung to their philosophical opiate, but most of us understood that eternity and divinity were cancelled When the first reanimated corpse erupted from its grave, which left nothing, just years of well-fed graveyard life with zombies at the gate, the lack of joy was killing us more efficiently than any gnashing teeth and tearing fingers could. Our leaders were desperate. In a last-ditch effort to fill our agonizing hollowness, they gave bloody birth to the game, and my fellow cemetery dwellers were satisfied. That disgusts me more than anything else. They all love the game. Even though they understand that one unfortunate day, they may be the participants, they're willing to risk it for the rush they get from watching. The proletariat still have to work it for the pleasure of the powerful people, even in the cemeteries of the new world. And they agree to do it. I want to scream. I want to die, but I don't want to give them the gift of watching me. I'm alone since they sacrificed Noel, and I'm an easy target. The only reason they haven't played me in the game is because it's amusing to let me live. Every grinding day I spend here is a joke. They're taking bets on when I'll crack and give myself to the zombies, or better yet, when I try to attack our little community and take revenge for them killing Noel. They love a good death battle. It doesn't matter whose blood is shed, human, zombie, it's all the same. A full belly and entertainment. That's all the savage human virus has ever been about, but we've hidden it beneath intricate webs of civilization until now. In a world ruled by the dead, what need is there to conceal our base selves? I'm as primitive as the rest of them. The same adrenaline spurts in my bloodstream, like liquid fire with each new game, and I despise myself for it. But I feel something they don't seem to. Love. I love Noel. I miss her. I don't think they remember love. In that regard, they're already zombies themselves every last stinking one of them. She was my girlfriend of five years, and I still thought she was goddess incarnate. She was tall, dark-skinned, and tough. Without her, I never would have survived the zombies and made it to a cemetery community. I don't know now if that's a good or bad thing. All I know is that Noel was my angel, my protector, my inspiration, There was beauty in our species while I could stare into her black eyes and kiss her soft pillow lips. She called me Curly Sue. It wasn't original. It was trite and common, but it was all mine and sounded so sweet, tumbling from her tongue. Nobody calls me anything much now. I'm not sure they know my name anymore. Sometimes I think I've forgotten it myself. I'm empty and alone. Who cares what my name is? Noel did. She cared that my name was Susan enough to twist it into something that was her own and make me her own. So I try to remember that I'm Susan, Curly Sue. Not for me, for Noel. It happened like this There was no Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. Just random time, a series of sun ups and sundowns set to the music of milling zombies. Nobody had anywhere to be, so time became redundant. We were cut loose, set adrift in space. It was horrific. She kept me tethered to earth. We lay in the pit we dug with our bare hands, five feet into the soft soil of a tree lined corner of the graveyard. It was warm in there. "'wrapped around each other. "'We rose only to eat and defecate. "'Noel had been out of the graveyard on food detail. "'They sent her because she was so strong. "'She had a good chance of returning. "'She went without protest. "'She thought it was fair to do her bit. "'I lay trembling in the pit every time she left, "'convinced that she wouldn't return. "'She always did, "'and I buried my face in her thick, dark hair, "'sobbing tears of relief.' Relax, Curly Sue, she'd say, stroking my back like the mother-sister-lover-friend she was. I'm a big girl. I'll always come back to you, little girl. It's fate and love and the way things are, understand? I believed, but I worried, too. I knew she was amazing, and amazing things were given only to be taken away. So they took her, and I can't tell you what day it was because I don't know. I can't pinpoint the moment it happened, because every moment is the same. That's the most profane thing about it. Someone like Noelle deserved to have her death noted in the turning cogs of time. We were making love. Her long brown legs were curled around my white ones, intertwining like writhing snakes. She gave off baked heat when we coupled. I basked in it. She was slippery with sweat. I gloried in sliding my fingers around the slick skin of her back. Her tongue danced around my lips, teasing me, and the hard blasts of breath from her nose were a delicious assault on my face. I ground myself against her, thrusting up, our bodies consumed by a hunger that rivaled the zombies who listened to our carnal sounds. Death and sex, the timeless marriage— Two lesbos getting it on in the graveyard while the world goes to shit. Don't that speak volumes, a voice drawled. I looked up over Noelle's shoulder. She grabbed my chin, steering me back toward hers, lips roaming my face. Ignore them, she breathed in my ear, her breath a wisp of temptation. But I wasn't that strong. Besides, they'd never intruded on us like this. Something felt wrong. Go away, I said, glaring up at the figure above us. Tom Sheehan. He usually restrained his boorishness to leering at us from the shadows. He was a coward and a bigot. Most of the survivors were. It took a special sort of selfish desperation to evade zombies. Unless, like me, you had a goddess to deliver you. That's not nice, Tom hissed. Several figures appeared around the rim of our pit. They reached in and laid their hands on Noelle. Leave her alone! I screamed, digging my fingers into the flesh of her back, trying to hold on. She was oily with our lovemaking, and I couldn't keep her safe from them. She thrashed, muscles bulging, and the white of her furious eyes vivid. She didn't speak. She just fought. It took ten of them to haul her out of the pit. She was big, strong, and enraged. They were all men, the tallest and broadest. They'd known she'd resist. She was powerful. They knew their best chance was to sneak in a mob. Gutless bastards. Slimy cretins. Tom still crouched next to the pit, staring at me. I struggled to my feet, covering my naked breasts and pubic mouth with my hands. I felt his piggy gaze skitter across my flesh like, Lose some flabby bugs. I forced myself to meet his eyes, and he grinned. I could see saliva glistening on his lips. Your Hellcat Gal Pal is for the game, he said, winking. She's gonna put on a hell of a show. Don't worry, I'll keep you warm at night after. Always been a charitable guy. I grabbed the edge of the pit, ready to pull myself out and go to Noel's aid. Tom stood and brought his steel-capped boot down on my fingers. The pain was brilliant and nauseating. I heard a crackling sound as the delicate bones in my hands snapped. I wasn't strong like Noelle. I screamed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly
1: Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
3: Stay in there, he said, drawing his boot back and aiming at my face. I cradled my broken hands in front of my heaving belly and tried in vain to see Noel above ground. All I could see was a mass of jerking backs as the men closed in around her. She still wasn't making a sound. Please, I whispered. Tom laughed. I tried to scrabble out of the pit without using my screaming hands. I must have looked pitiful, naked, crying, climbing using my elbows and feet. Noel wouldn't have been so pathetic if our roles had been reversed. I said stay, Tom snarled, and kicked me in the head. Instant blackness. I woke up, folded in a corner of the pit. A sharp scent strung my nostrils, and after a moment I realized what it was. Ammonia. My hair and face felt wet, and I shivered in the cold air. The sun was high, but shed no warmth. He pissed on me. They took Noel, broke my hands, knocked me out, and pissed on me. This is what is at stake. This was humanity. As far as I was concerned, the zombies were a preferable future. I inspected my hands. They were swollen lumps, skin stretched taut and shiny, and already a vibrant shade of purple. As if on cue, my head began to throb and complain. My right eye viewed the world through a thin curtain of crimson where the blood from my head trickled down. I stood up. They had Noel. I couldn't do much about it, but I couldn't stay in the pit and let it go unchecked either. I used my hands to climb out. I bit my tongue to swallow the pain, gagging on the pulse of blood that flowed down my throat. Everything was red agony, but they had Noel, and that eclipsed it all. Right on time, Tom called as I staggered across the graveyard. He leaned on a tree, smiling and beckoning me like an old friend. Behind him was our entire village, clustered in a thrumming mass near the gates. As I neared them, Tom grasped my elbow, guiding me through the crowd. They parted for us, staring with exhilarated eyes. I was crying again. The salt of my tears stang my ravaged face. Tom's hand was a claw, digging cruelly into the tender flesh of my arm. I didn't think about the zombies stumbling nearby. They were a daydream in contrast to the grotesquerie of my fellow human beings. Noelle stood in front of the open gates, groaning zombies pawing the air less than a meter from her. She was still naked, her dark skin mottled with blood and bruises, I saw the imprint of a boot—I'll kill you, Tom, I swear, somehow I will—in the small of her back, and thought I might die from grief and fury. A ragged sob choked out of my throat, and Noel turned around, looking at me. One of her beautiful eyes was swollen shut, her bottom lip torn. They'd beaten her. The game worked better if the participant was bloody and fighting their injuries, besides which they liked beating on people. She raised one long arm and pointed at me, resting her other hand over her heart. I'll always come back to you, Curly Sue, she said. Her voice was calm and clear. She was impossibly strong. I love you. Remember. Aw, oh, we so fucking sweet I could cry, Tom said. But he was weak against the force between Noel and I. I felt it sparking, connecting us, I pointed at her with one ruined hand and placed the other on the hollow space that was my heart. They let us stand like that for a moment. Then the machine gunners stepped forward. Their job was to mow a path through the zombies to create a space for the gamer to run through. Noel stood motionless, watching while they fulfilled their role with aplomb. The undead fell in jittering mounds as the bullets tore into their heads, and reversed their reanimation once and for all. The gunners whooped and hollered, sweating, excited, and giddy with the thrill of the easy kill. I covered my ears against the rat-a-tat-tat of the guns. The result was a bizarre silent movie of exploding zombie heads and falling undead bodies. Zombies were horrible dead things that should be underground instead of staggering around trying to kill everyone. But they were people once. They were abhorrent, but mostly they were people who were different to us, and we were mowing them down. They were without intellect, driven by irresistible hunger. We were intelligent, supposedly. We used our advantage to kill easy targets. We were evil. Although maybe the zombies weren't entirely unintelligent, because after a few minutes of watching their comrades being slaughtered by the gunners, they hung back the path cleared by the bullets stayed open it was time for noelle to play the game they gave her a hunting knife and machine gun i saw her arms shaking under the weight of the gun and knew how badly they had hurt her but she walked forward not looking back not even at me if she'd refused to play they would have gunned her down where she stood and thrown her corpse out for the zombies to devour she had a gun but they had several the game was not voluntary. Once chosen, you left the cemetery and greeted the zombies, one way or another. She left with her battered head held high. Hidden in the woods outside the graveyard was a metal ball. The prize. Noel had to find the prize and bring it back to win the game. If she did, she'd never have to play again. She'd never have to go on food detail, muck out a lavatory hole or venture out for ammunition and blankets and the other primitive and technological miscellany our village coveted. She'd live in the graveyard with her community taking care of her, reveling in her heroism. It sounded like a good deal, but nobody had ever won a game. Nobody except the zombies, the undefeated champions. As I stood watching my love march out the gates and into the sea of churning undead, I dared to hope. Noel bolted for the trees. The zombies were cautious, unintelligent my arse, making occasional grabs with fetid hands, but not rushing forward. She slashed at their seeking fingers as she sprinted past. She looked fearsome, a gore-clad fury with flying hair, sinuous muscles, and wild eyes. I should have walked away then, sunk into our pit and remembered her in her prime. But I couldn't. They lunged as she neared the edge of the woods. A pack of twenty surged forward and tackled her to the ground. I saw a child zombie lift Noelle's flailing foot to its mouth and bite off her toes. A dozen sprays of blood arced into the air around the snarling, biting, tearing zombies. I thought she'd get further, Tom complained. The crowd was disappointed. I thought I would explode from the hate bubbling and festering inside my veins. She was dying for their amusement. How could they be so cruel? I loved her, and she was dying, and they didn't care. But incredibly, my warrior queen was rising to her mutilated feet. In a volley of gunfire and a flash of knife play, she emerged from the clump of undead. They fell like marionettes whose string had been cut. I saw the child zombie's blonde head burst open in a cascade of white and red pulp as Noel took aim and fired. I screeched a primal cry of bloodlust and triumph. Run! Get to the trees! Run until you find the prize and get back here! I shrieked to Noel through the bars of the cemetery fence. A man-zombie swiped at my face on the other side and I laughed at him. I felt spittle trickle from my lips and I knew I was crazy. For she was lost whether she made it back or not. They had bitten her, torn at her, infected her. She wouldn't be no well for much longer. It was over. But the game wasn't over, and she was still my beloved. So I watched, cried, yelled, and screamed. Through it all, she never made a sound, never looked back. She was something else, some other species elevated above humans and zombies. She was perfect, and still she ran. She was enveloped by the trees, and as if heeding some psychic call, every zombie turned and followed. They clambered, straining forward, crushing their kin in the rush to chase Noel. Their groans were jagged and urgent. They had been hungry for a long time, and they too loved the game, for it meant food and purpose for a brief while. They were past their momentary fear of destruction, and their focus was fixed on Noelle. There was a loud beeping sound, and the crowd gasped. Happy damn. The bitch giant done it. Too bad for her. It doesn't matter now. Tom spoke in my ear. I didn't care. I was euphoric, delirious. It was the prize monitor going off. She'd picked it up and flicked the sensor switch. She'd got it. Nobody had ever done that before. She was special. She was coming back and everything would be all right. Noel. I stood at the fence for a day and a night. Everyone gave up and wandered back to their idle business after a few hours, but I refused to accept it. She had the prize. She'd won the game. She'd said she'd always come back. She made a promise, and she was a goddess. Somehow it would be okay. A few women with something vaguely resembling decency left in their shriveled hearts picked me up and carried me to my... our... pit. I think they wanted me out of sight. It was offensive to see me keeping a pathetic vigil at the fence. They didn't want the reminder of their guilt. The zombies didn't emerge from the woods for several days. Noel must have been a delight of epic proportions for them. They were even more slow-moving and vacant-eyed than usual after their orgy of ghoulishness. Peeping over the edge of my pit, I could see her blood smeared on them. One held a severed hand, dark-skinned and long-fingered, nibbling on the weeping wrist stump like a juicy canapé. I couldn't stay in the pit. She should have been there with me. It was our place. Instead, she was splattered across the replete undead. Nothing was right out there, and nothing was right in here. I climbed out and found the most exposed, uncomfortable tomb to lie in. Thank you, Slone, Comma Marjorie. It was penance, the least I deserved for doing nothing while they took Noel. There was nothing I could have done, but she would have fought for me. I was barren, null, and void. Another zombie had been made without so much as a bite. My world was dead. I don't know how long it's been. I tried keeping track, but the days and nights are greasy things that slip through my clutching mind, and I find myself lost in them. Maybe it's been a year. When I woke up curled in the fetal position in my dead bed, I knew today was game day, and they were going to play me at last. I dreamed it, and in the new dead world... Dreams didn't lie. Tom sat on the edge of Sloan, Marjorie's slab, staring at me. Was it pain I saw in his moist eyes? He was disgusting, but perhaps even he felt emotion in this weird place. He'd made several advances since Noel had gone. I'd rejected them. Now they'd sent him to collect me, and he was less than ecstatic about it. I hated him all the same. If I thought I'd stood a chance of success, I would have tried to pluck the eyes from his murdering skull with my deformed hands that had never healed right. Hands that he had ruined. Wake up, sleepyhead, he said, voice hard. His eyes continued to give him away. Today's a special day. Is it? I yawned, knuckling the crust of sleep from my eyes. Am I meant to be shocked, scared? "'Sad? <laughs> "'Sorry, I'm just bored. "'You have that effect on me.' "'His mouth twisted, and one of his hands jerked as if he'd like to slap me. "'You're a stupid bitch. "'You know that? "'I could have looked after you. "'They would have left you alone if he was with me. "'I tried, but you won't be safe, will you? "'Still hung up on that Amazon woman of yours. "'Well, fine. "'Take what's coming to you, then. "'Get up.' "'Oh, they'd leave me alone if I was with you?' <laughs> My laughter was a bitter bark in the chill morning air. You're safe from the games? I think you'll find out one day just what utter bullshit that is, Tom. We're all meat for the beast. Nobody here cares about anyone. Nobody is safe. Nobody is special. Nothing matters. Not even you. Especially not you. He did slap me then, a solid blow that sent my head reeling and thickening my brain. It hurt, but I laughed again. I knew that would bother him. "'Come die, then. "'We'll send you to join your bitch-girlfriend. "'Isn't that what you want, Curly Sue?' He knew how to stop my laughter. He reached to pull me up, but I waved his hand away. I was determined to go with pride and strength like Noel had. I was so terrified that I thought I might lose control of my bladder, but I wouldn't let them see. I wouldn't do anything to intensify their enjoyment.' They stood at the gates, waiting. I was clothed and Noël had been naked, but I couldn't muster the quiet dignity she'd emanated. My lower lip was trimly, and my breath was shallow and rapid. I could feel sweat rolling in beads down my brow despite the morning cold. The gunners stood tensed and ready. Nobody moved toward me. Nobody beat me. It wasn't necessary. I'd been bleeding and broken ever since Noël died. I felt hard metal in my hand and realized Tom was pressing a knife into it. I took it, and he placed a machine gun in my other. It was ridiculous. I had no idea how a gun worked, and couldn't operate it whilst wielding a knife with my other hand, not with my mangled paws. I was no warrior, not like Noel. The weapons felt heavy and cumbersome, and as useful as if I'd been brandishing a frozen fish on a banana. But all that mattered was that I didn't break. No tears, no pleading. You're all going to die, I said. They stared back at me, saucer eyes and moon faces. We know, a little boy said. I looked at him and he met my gaze. His face was blank. He couldn't have been more than six years old. If I can, I'll come back and kill you all, I said knowing it was ludicrous. Maybe we could give her a break. Tom's voice was behind me, always behind me. They looked at him, pleased. Here was some palpable pain. Here was the entertainment I was withholding. She, her girlfriend died this way. Maybe she should be exempt. Marion, our leader, stepped forward. She was smiling. She looked like a kind old woman with plump arms you could step into. She had thought up the game, and she selected who played. She was Grandmother Death. Are you volunteering to take her place, Tom? Is that what you're saying? There was a pause, stretching out into eternity, while I stood holding my useless weapons. Tom coughed. The little boy who had spoken giggled. Then... Uh, "'No, I I was only saying... uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I I didn't mean to interfere.' "'No, I didn't think you did,' Marion said, still smiling. "'Cowards!' I hissed through chattering teeth. "'You're all cowards!' "'Show us bravery, then, Susan,' Marion said. She waved one of her small hands at the gates and the zombies loitering beyond. "'Serve your community. "'Show us heroism and exhilaration. "'Entertain us. "'Feed them. "'There are no better causes. "'There is nothing else.' "'I spat at her, "'and one of the gunners raised his weapon above his head for a blow. "'Marion stopped him with a look, "'and he fell back, glowering. "'She wiped my spittle from her chest "'and fixed her pale blue eyes on me. "'I looked away first. What good was a battle of wills to me with this death queen now? Marian nodded at the gunners, and they set about their noisy, bloody work. Standing here so close to them, the sound was deafening. I could hear the cries of the undead with unbearable clarity from my vantage point next to the gates. I'd never noticed how animalistic they sounded when wounded. Their cacophony was violent and terrible. I forced myself not to block my ears. This was my death, too, and I wanted to be present for it. Every gun blast, every thock as bullets tore into zombie flesh, every scream and whimper from the dying undead, I took it in and made it my own. The legion of walking corpses outside the cemetery fell back. A clear path opened amongst them, snaking toward the woods. The grass was green and fragrant out there, and I remembered that the world wasn't dead only the part of it that was human. Everything else was fecund and free. I had no more time to reflect, because I was nudged forward. I dropped my gun. It was no good to me and would weigh me down. The knife I kept, though I had little chance of using it productively. What the fuck are you doing? Tom's voice was buzzing insect in my ear. You don't stand a chance without the gun. Are you crazy? I ignored him. He was as dead as I was. I crouched, allowing energy to coil in my haunches, building, climax, and release as I sprang into a full-blown sprint. I was out of the graveyard for the first time in years. My feelings were not fear, but giddiness. I'd escaped. Here was life. Then I felt the first cold, moist hands paw at my torso, and my skin leapt in disgust. I waved the knife wildly around me as I ran feeling it connect more than a few times, shuddering at the wetness that soon coated my slashing hand. I kept my eyes fixed on the narrowing strip of grass in front of me and the woods beyond. I didn't want to see the zombies. Confronting them so closely would bring an abrupt end to my running. My legs would seize with horror. So long as I refused to acknowledge their proximity with my eyes, I could keep going. I heard the villagers cheering me on, they sounded crazed, overjoyed, stunned. I didn't run for them. I was looking for my prize, and it was in the woods. It wasn't that stupid metal ball. I was small and fast, even after years penned up in the graveyard. I could see trees that marked the edge of the woods, meters away. I stretched out my hand, straining for them. A zombie's hand clamped on my wrist like a stone manacle, and I was wrenched by the force of the grab and my forward momentum. I slammed into the creature, my face smacking its own. I gasped a lungful of air, felt bile rise in my throat as the thing's death stench flooded into me. Its mouth snapped at mine, trying to take in flesh. One of its eyes dangled on the stem, bouncing and brushing my skin as the other stared in frenzied malice. It had no nose, just ragged flap of skin where it had been. Worms writhed in its patchy black hair, and lice burrowed in its ears. Its flesh was green-gray and damp, coated with mold. I didn't know if it was male or female. It was just a zombie. It moaned, a flaccid sound flopping from its rotten throat. Get your hands off me, I said, bringing the knife up with my free hand, pressing it to the thing's soft neck. I'm sorry, but I have to get in the woods. Let me go. It mewled, still trying to bite my face. The hand that wasn't gripping my wrist, gouging at my chest hard enough to lift the skin in bloody, burning furrows. I could sense its comrades closing in. I had seconds before they were on top of me. I'm sorry, I said again, plunging the knife into its throat. It gave easily, the flesh collapsing like moist souffle. In two stabs, the head dangled by a thin string of mildewed skin. One more rip, and the head toppled off. The zombie's hand came undone around my wrist, and its body slumped to the ground. A score of hands caressed me, trying to grab, tear, devour. I shrugged them off and threw myself forward into the cool darkness of the woods. My legs spasmed and gave way. I tumbled to my knees, falling into the aromatic grass, and dead leaf mulch on the forest floor. My head spun and my body trembled. I couldn't think straight. I retched until a flood of hot filth poured out of my mouth and painted the undergrowth around me. My traumatized body had betrayed me. I couldn't even crawl. I flopped onto my back and stared up at the leafy canopy above me, whimpering. I waited to feel the first defiling hands on my body, sobbed as I anticipated the first snaggle of teeth penetrating my skin. My knife lay next to me, useless, accusatory. I waited a long time and eventually realized the zombies hadn't followed me. But something was coming for me, shuffling across the ground in lopsided steps. It approached behind my head. I rolled my eyes back as far as they would go, ignoring the watery sting "'but saw only a blur. Come and get me then,' I croaked, "'throat tight and dry. "'I'm an easy meal. "'Dinner's served. "'I can't move, and I don't care. "'Not anymore. more. shoe,' the thing crooned. "'Something in the deepest part of my brain exploded. "'My prize! "'My visitor reached my side.' edged forward, stood over me. I could see it, her, in glorious perspective, a living dead goddess looming above me in terrible beauty. Noel, the word left my mouth before my brain registered it. I couldn't breathe, couldn't think. I was pure emotion, trapped in my fleshy shell. She was still divine. Her dark eyes were intact, boggling at me from the mess that was her face. Half the skin on her head had torn and dangled in a large sheet from her chin. But it was her skin, that glossy mahogany casing that enclosed everything that was Noel. It was mottled and savage and paler, but still hers. Her large teeth grinned at me like friggedy fence palings. One of her voluminous lips dangled with the skin beneath her chin. Her matted hair was flecked with gore. One of her arms was gone from the elbow down, leaving a stringy stump of gristle and bone. All her toes and parts of her feet were gone. The downy pad between her legs was a mishmash of blood and maggots. All over her I saw teeth marks, gaping wounds, dangling flesh. A loop of sausage-like intestines protruded from her open belly, wound around her waist like a belt. She was carnage. Pestilence and decay, but she was still something else, something above humans, zombies, and the whole damn mess. She was dead, she was hungry, and she was different, but she was Noel. My love for her was alive, no matter what. Her throat bulged, and she hacked a few times, like a macabre cat trying to dislodge a fur ball. It's okay, I said, reaching up to her with shaking hands. Don't hurt yourself. You don't need to. Um, back for you. She clawed at her neck, frowning, frustrated. um, back for. You. You. A thought occurred to me, and it gave me the strength to sit up. Noel, are you scared of the graveyard? She stared at me with lurid eyes. The skin dangling from her face swayed like a grisly beard as she shook her head. No. I didn't think you would be. You're different, aren't you? Different to us all. That's why you can talk to me. That's why you remembered me. You've kept a lot of you in there. And maybe with you by my side, I could do the same. I saw that her hand was trembling and every now and then she would twitch toward me. "'She kept grabbing at herself, stopping. "'You're hungry, aren't you?' "'The enormous flap of skin jiggled again as she nodded, eyes sorrowful and vicious. "'No "'It's okay, my darling. I want you to. "'It will only hurt for a while, and then I'll be with you forever, "'and we'll have food and vengeance.' We'll go to the graveyard, we'll sneak up on them, we'll give them the best damned game they've ever had, and for you and me, the food, the game, and the love will last for eternity. Remember, it's fate and love and the way things are. She had fallen to her knees, and her fingers were fumbling at the blood on my hands and arms. She brought her hand to her mouth and sucked, eyes rolling in her head. I knew she couldn't control herself much longer. You're the first, Noel," I said, as she bent her face down to mine. You're the start of something new. I'm lucky enough to come along with you for the ride, but it's always been you that counted. And you're better than all of them. No matter what happens, you're better. We'll be better. We kissed, my lips sliding down inside the gaping corrosive wound that was her mouth. Her tongue was furry and soft, and her breath was cold. I felt her hand at my neck, tentative at first, then squeezing, gouging. Her fingers burrowed, laying my throat open under their insistence. She was moaning and panting, like so many times before at the height of passion. It was going to hurt a lot, but I thought she'd make it quick. (sighs) She gurgled against my cheek as her teeth met my skin for the first time. The pain was sharp and brilliant, searing my senses. My face was raw and my nerve endings were aflame. It was so much worse than I had expected. And it was only a little bite, just the beginning. I love you, too. I gasped, digging my nails into my palms, biting the urge to scream, to run, to fall apart. Noel was chewing on a piece of my face, making small sounds of ecstasy in the back of her dead throat. Her hand was around my neck so tight. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. The world was receding into brilliant pinpricks of light in dancing blackness, and in the center of it was Noel. I still had love and hate, and I took them both down into oblivion. Remember the graveyard, I screamed inside my fading brain, desperate to cling to purpose. Remember Noelle and be with her. And kill them all. Humans, zombies, just kill them. I found meaning and purpose and vitality at last as Noelle tore my chest open and grappled my ribcage to get to my heart, which was always hers. Now comes the joy at last, And food, always food, steaming, dripping, throbbing flesh and red-hot blood. I want it already. I want to see them run, toy with them, hear them beg. Bread and circuses, even unto infinity, it's all there is. Even for me, even for you. It hurts, and it's horrible, and it's beautiful, and we might as well enjoy it.
2: This story, Bread and Circuses, uh, was a finalist for the 2010 Dittmar Award for Short Fiction, as well as the 2010 Australian Shadows Award for Short Fiction, and was the recipient of positive reviews after appearing in the Scary Kisses anthology, and was described in Scoop magazine as one of the highlights of that collection. Along with Alan Baxter and Andrew McKiernan, Felicity is a founder and contributing editor at 13 o'clock. The narrator for Bread and Circuses is Cher Eves. Cher is the assistant editor over at the new Crime City Central podcast. And if you want to drop her a note, it's crimecitycentral at crimecitycentralgmail.com. In real life, Cher is a lawyer. A former prosecutor and capital defense attorney, she retired from criminal defense after 15 years and now practices workers' compensation law in her husband's home state, Kentucky. On April 2, 2012, Share was sworn in to practice before the United States Supreme Court. So don't mess with Cher. And that is it for this week. Zombie dogs, zombie games, and zombie... Well, what more could anyone want on this hot, near-August night? Next week? Ah, next week. We'll have something I have promised myself I'd do for a long time. Next week, we'll have a classic tale of creeping terror. A sea tale in which our hero comes more or less face to face with... (laughs) Ah. Ah, well, you'll just have to stop by, won't you? Yes. Now, scoot, be off. I have more to do tonight as you trudge home and find your cool and happy nest. Mahler and I will still be hard at work here in the nook, getting ready as you're sound asleep. So when you get home, if you can keep your eyes open, stop by one or more of the neighborhoods in the District of Wonders, pulp, crime, science fiction, it's all here. It's all just around the corner and down the alley. I'm sure a quick listen here and there, along with memories of cemetery life among the zombies, will bring you to Pleasant Dreams.' This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.